Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra six verses six, Ezra three verses six through thirteen. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josadak made a beginning, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites, from twenty years old and upward, to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel with his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks, Alex, for leading out in, in the baptism. <laughs> um, yeah. Can't imagine them having an award for the most likely to baptize. That was good. That was good. Well, in the process of putting together a message I'd like to be able to answer the question, if, if I had to tell someone in one or two words what I would say is the subject of the message, what would that one or two words be? And so I kind of work hard to kind of think that through here. Well, well last week, um, we found that the exiles placed a priority on the building of the altar, the place where sin could be atoned for, an altar that was conspicuous, um, not only for their benefit, and the benefit was, of course, that this is good news. They're, they're coming back into the land with good news that there is a God, the God of heaven and earth, and he is the one who has made a way for our sins to be atoned for, and it is on this altar. A life must be given. Blood must be shed. It's good news, so it's their benefit, conspicuous for their benefit, but also conspicuous for the benefit of the people within the land. And so what they are doing is that they are making the altar a priority, and so in Doing so, they are making worship, both personal and corporate worship, a priority as well as they are going into the restorative work that God was calling his people to do in Jerusalem and throughout the promised land, a work within their hearts and lives, in families and in communities. And so it's true today, um, in the restorative work that God is calling us to do, worship, both personal and corporate worship, is absolutely crucial for that work. Yet as we continue with the exile story this morning, there is a sense of incompletion with that work. By those words in the second half of the verse of verse 6 which says this, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Sins were forgiven, but the work was not done. There was more work to be done. The question is, what kind of work? Which gets me back to what word or words should I use to capture the subject of this message? Well, I think the, the word, I would say, is work, but I think it's more than just kind of mundane work. Rather, the work that we see here, or the work I want to kind of share with you this today is, uh, is, is transformative work transformative 
work. When God stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, and when he stirred up the exiles while still in Babylon, he was calling them into transformative work. And he's still calling us into that kind of work today. If you are in Christ, Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. When Paul is writing to the Ephesians, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, he says, be, or sorry, chapter 4, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. And then he goes and describes what that imitation looks like, not only in their individual characteristics, in their individual behavior, but then he goes into relationships. He goes into the relationships between the husband and the wife, the relationship between uh, employees and employers, the uh, relationship between parents and children. See, God is calling everyone in Christ to be about a transformative work in these relationships. And God is calling his people to be about transformative work within our society. And there really is no secular space. We live in a sacred city in which God is calling us into a transformative work changing that city, this city. Um, Andy, uh, leading our worship this morning, uh, Andy, he, he, in his prayer, kind of helped define for us, if you will, what is this thing called transformative work. And that is, it's a work of God that is not something that's simply an outward change of behavior, but rather it is a work that is the change of a heart, a giving of a new heart, a changing of the heart. So when we're talking about transformative work, this is the kind of work that we are, we are uh, talking about. So here's my question for the day. What are the essentials for transformative work? What are the essentials for transformative work? And what I think we find here in, in Ezra, chapter 3, 6 through 13, is I think we do five, uh, find five essential, uh, essentials necessary for uh, transformative work. Five essentials necessary for transformative work. So let's pray and ask God for help as we get into this. Father, um, uh, please help us. Uh, please help our minds, but more than our minds, Father, we pray that you would help our hearts that, God, you would increase your joy in our hearts over what you, who you are and what you have done on our behalf and what you are calling us into. And so, Father, we pray, do a work. Do a work, Father. Um, make us more and more into the image of your Son. Increase our joy in who he is. Cause our lives to be lives that are... Um, honoring and glorifying to you because we come out of this adoration and love for who you are. So please work, Lord, in all of our circumstances. Please work, we pray, as we uh, come to this. Thank you for calling us into this kind of work, but please help us as we uh, consider transformative work this morning and what uh, you gave to us 2,500 years ago in order for us to enjoy today. So uh, thank you. Uh, we pray these scenes in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first essential is this. If you, if we, are going to be people uh, about transformative work, the first essential is the presence of God. Is the presence of God. Now, we're going to sit in on this the longest because with, without it, all the other essentials are meaningless. But we're going to sit here also uh, because it is the most remarkable and it is the most wonderful truth, one that ought to light the fire of adoration within our, our hearts. So we're going to sit here for quite a while, and then we'll quickly get through the other four essentials. Uh, but I think this one's really important. So let's look there, the presence of God, uh, beginning at, again at verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. And so they gave money to the masons and to the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrrhenians to, uh, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, Lebanon was known uh, for its great cedar forests. And Lebanon was and still is uh, a beautiful region in the Middle East. 
Situated on the Mediterranean Sea, its coastal plain is at best very narrow, uh, about five to ten miles in many places. And, and there's other places where there's the spurs of the mountains actually uh, intersect this coastal plain. Uh, and these, uh, and so they reach the shores. And these mountains are majestic in appearance because some of them reach to the level of 10,000 feet. So you can, you can just imagine starting from zero to 10,000 feet. These are amazing mountains that they have there in Lebanon. And then on the, on the uh, east side and the west side of these mountains, they receive a lot of uh, amount of rain. And during the winter, they receive snow. And as a result, then, uh, the, growing on both of these slopes are these prized cedars of Lebanon. Throughout ancient times, these were the preferred trees for the long beams that were uh, necessary for uh, large structures. Uh, to, they're, they're tall trees, they're, they're strong trees, uh, they're straight trees. So biblically, the cedars of Lebanon served as symbols of stability and, and of strength. But they were not only used for strength, but they were also used for beauty. So we read in the building of the first temple, Solomon's temple in 1 Kings, we read these words. It said there that Solomon lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. And from the floor of the house, speaking of the temple, to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood. He covered the floor of the house with boards of then cypress. The cedar was within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers and all was cedar. No stone was seen. And then Solomon accented these cedar walls with uh, gold engraved figures of cherubim and, and palm trees and flowers so that even today as uh, the, the cedars, Lebanon's fame is her cedars so that front and center on the national Lebanese flag is a cedar tree. However, what Lebanon had in mountains and trees, she didn't have in terms of agricultural space. Therefore, all along the sea, there were ports where foodstuffs were traded for the timber. So two of Lebanon's six ports were Sidon and Tyre. In exchange for food and drink and oil, the Sidonians, known for their expert lumberjacks, would cut down the needed trees, and then these would be shipped from the seaport of Tyre, uh, lashed together as temporary rafts, and then floated down along the coast to Joppa, uh, the nearest Israeli port to Jerusalem. All of this preparation work was done according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia, which is a reminder again of God's sovereign work, his hand, his movement in the heart of the earthly sovereign referred back to in chapter one, verse four, where it says there that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of the land or all the kingdom and also put it in writing to build this temple. Now, what is the significance of the temple? Well, to answer this question, we need to go back to the forerunner, the tabernacle, that temporary tent-like structure uh, that God commanded his people to build as this, these newly minted people of God who has just been redeemed out of Egypt. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, to Exodus chapter 29, Exodus chapter 29. Exodus chapter 29. We begin in verse 42. Now after commanding the need for the daily morning and evening sacrifices, and these are the sacrifices that we find there in Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So if you remember that, so these are the same sacrifices. This is what we read, Exodus 29 at verse 42. Uh, it says there, it, it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. And there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory, and I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. 
I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. <laughs> I am the Lord their God. Now, I hope you didn't miss the significance of the tabernacle and its purpose. First of all, it's called the tent of meeting. Verse 42. He says, verse 42, where I will meet you. Verse 43. I will meet with the people of God. Verse 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel. Verse 46, he brought them out of the land of Egypt for what purpose? He says, that I might dwell among them. What is significant about the temple? The God of heaven longs to dwell among his people. God longs for what he had in the garden before the fall. See, it was there in the garden where heaven and earth met. And it was there where the best of relationships, the best of friendships was experienced. Um, you've had those moments, right? You've, you've had those, those relationships. You've had those times where uh, you are uh, probably gathered around a good meal. You're having a great conversation. Perhaps you're in a beautiful location with a group of friends. And it is a sweet fellowship that has burned down deep into your heart so that even now you can reflect back on that moment, on that time when you were with those friends, with that sweet fellowship, and you can smile. <laughs> Well, that sweet fellowship is a nibble, a nibble of the feast that Adam and Eve had in the garden with God, so that even in the third chapter of Genesis, where we're now getting the description of the fall, we regretfully read these words, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which explains why then Moses tells him in the making of the tabernacle, these words in Exodus 25, 9, he says, do exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so shall you make it. Because God wants this place where heaven is going to meet humanity to be reminiscent of that sweet place and moment in human history in the garden where this beautiful fellowship existed. And so the interior of the tabernacle had curtains with, with, with cherubim in them. Exodus 26, or 1 says, they were skillfully worked into them. Cherubim were these heavenly creatures, are these heavenly creatures who serve the Lord. And the first time we're introduced to the cherubim is we're introduced to them in chapter 3, verse 1 in Exodus, where God uses them, calls them out, calls a cherubim to protect Adam and Eve from making a second fatal mistake, and that is to eat of the tree of life and thus secure themselves for all eternity as independent of God, separated from him for all eternity, so he protects them. And then he creates this tabernacle, and then we're going to see in the temple, these cherubims are back in. They're, they're there overlooking what is going on there in the temple, guarding the place where God's people can meet again in a place that is reminiscent of that sweet garden, of that sweet fellowship that God had with his people. So Moses is instructed by God to craft a lampstand for the tabernacle. And it says, like a tree with branches. And at the end of the branches, cups made like almond blossoms. In Solomon's temple, that first temple, he has the craftsmen engrave gold palm trees and flowers and cherubim in the cedar walls of the temple. The God of the garden longs to dwell among his people. Why is this so remarkable? Well, let me try to explain it this way. <clears throat> I'm, I'm part of North Park MC, missional community. And our mission is to staff King's Harvest Essential Store once 
per month. And we process essential donations. So that's shampoo, soap, toothpaste, toothbrushes, toilet paper, gloves, hats, these kind of things. Uh, essentials for everyday living. Which means what we do is we actually organize these donations, put them on the shelf, and then once a month we open the doors to the homeless and assist them to find what they need for the coming month. It's a relief work. But what they ultimately really need, what they really need is rehabilitation and development. That is, they need, to, they need the support to move them out of their limited existence into more of a more fruitful existence that God intended. But you can imagine all the issues. All kinds of issues. Psychological issues, spiritual issues, physical issues, financial issues, addictive issues. All kinds of issues. And the reality is that while we are all made in the image of God, which enables us to interact with them and to create a little bit of a, you know, a, a monthly relationship with them, we're getting to know their names. There's a huge gap between our lives and their lives. And frankly, um, I'm afraid to get any closer. I'm afraid to get any closer into their mess than once per month. It's about as close as I want to get. That's my brokenness. That's my sin. What is so remarkable is that the God of heaven, the God of the garden, wants to meet us in our infinite mess. He literally longs to dwell with us and literally did dwell with us. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And, and the God of the garden wasn't satisfied with a temporary tent or an edifice of a temple. These all pointed to the tabernacle, the temple to Jesus Christ. So he entered into our mess, and he dwelt in it. The God of the garden came down and lived among us. He entered into our mess and to die for our sins. But he wasn't satisfied, even with that. He wants to live in us. Turn to your Bibles to... 1 Corinthians. I again invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. New Testament, 1 Corinthians. You probably know John 3.16, but do you know 1 Corinthians 3.16? Now you might recognize it when, when I read it as you're looking at it in your Bible. Paul writes, do you not know, speaking to Christians, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now, uh, some clarification here. The yous here in this verse are plural. We, collectively, the, the body of Christ, we are the uh, temple a place where God dwells and meets his people. But how do we, um, how do we uh, become that? Well, Peter says it like this, 1 Peter 2, 4. I'll just read it for you, 2, 4 and 5. He says, as you come to him, Jesus Christ, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So collectively, we are a temple, and it happens as God makes us into living stones, so how does he do that? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, now you're going to turn just a few more pages over to a few more chapters. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, uh, he, he says this. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. He's making us into living stones by giving us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within us. As we invite him in, as we recognize that we are sinners and that we need a Savior, as we rest and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he, uh, he comes into us and dwells within us, and we become a living stone, part of the uh, greater temple of God. And yet, he also says, you're a temple. Or uh, turn in Romans chapter 8, Romans 8. So you just got one book before 1 Corinthians. You turn over to Romans 8, and uh, listen to these words, uh, chapter 8, verses 9 through 15. Read along with me. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Romans 8, 9 through 15. Romans 8, 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So there's the recognition that we do live in these, these fleshly bodies, and they still are, are hampered by sin, and uh, that kind of deadens us, that kills us to the good things of God. But he says, but, oh, but, but that may be the case of your body, but the spirit is in you, so you are still alive. Uh, verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, there's that word again, dwells. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Dwells. Now, John MacArthur writes in his commentary on this passage of Romans 8, he says, Paul assures believers of the wondrous truth that they are indeed God's adopted children and that because of that immeasurably gracious relationship, they have the full right and privilege to call out and cry out Abba to God as their heavenly father just as every child does as his, to his heavenly father. So you go down to verse 15. He says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And then he explains the term Abba. He says, Abba is an informal Aramaic term for father, connoting intimacy, tenderness, dependence, and complete lack of fear or anxiety. And he writes, modern English equivalents would be daddy or papa. That's the kind of intimacy that the Father wants to have in our lives, that we can call him papa. <laughs> That's remarkable. Think of this within God's story where the presence of God rightly causes God's people to tremble. Where only one, the high priest, could enter into his presence once a year. But that this presence longs to dwell with us so that he became present in our world as a man in order that he might be present in our lives. And it is here where I say, what a God. The God of the garden is in us because God longs to dwell among his people. And so our transformative work, we are able to taste of the garden to others. We are to be a taste of the garden to others. And so the first essential for a transformative work is the presence of God. We invite him in. If you are here and have never rested and trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, today's the day to invite him in. He, he wants you to invite him in. Recognize your sin and repent of that and say, yeah, I am a sinner. I'm coming as I am, just like you told me to do at the beginning of the pastoral welcome. Come as I am. And that's where God wants us. He's the one who died for those sins. He's the one who died for you. 
and rose again. In order that as you call to him and say, I want forgiveness, he says, you get forgiveness, and not only do you get forgiveness, I'll come in and live your life. I will transform your life. Invite him in today. And for us who God has already called us into that relationship, he is calling us now in the transformative work that he wants to do in our lives and the lives of our families and the lives of our uh, communities and the lives of our cities. Uh, He's saying, uh, let me in. We invite him in. In all that mess, he wants to be there. First essential, his presence. Well, what are the essentials for transformative work? Here's the second one. The second essential is a clear identity, is a clear identity. So back to our passage, uh, a clear identity. Look at the first part of verse 8. Now, in the second year, after they're coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, they, dot, 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 made a beginning. They made a beginning. Now, why give us a date? Well, this is the second month within the Jewish calendar. Our kind of a, it's kind of April, Mayish in our, uh, our calendar. It's in the second year of their return. It's the first month of the Jewish calendar is focused on the Passover. That, that reenactment and reminder of God's powerful call of the Israelites out of their slavery from Egypt. So this was an, an, an annual festival, an annual rhythm for them to be reminded uh, who they were. They're, to be reminded of their identity, that they were people who have been taken out of slavery and now they are God's people. So it is a reset every year that they are reminded of really this triad formula uh, to the covenant. And that is this. One, God says in this, uh, in this formula, I will be your God. Two, you will be my people. And three, I will live or dwell in the midst of you. So that's what they're reminded of there in the Passover. And so now we're into the second mind. So it was out of this second month, it was out of this identity that they were then able to do the transformative work he called, to them, called them to. So the God of the universe, with all that comes with that reality, sovereignty and power and wisdom, was behind this transformative work that they're going to do. They are his people, and so they're coming with his authority, and he is going to be right there in the mix. He's going to be with them. And so true of us. The transformative, uh, all-powerful work that God is calling us to, the sovereign, all-powerful God of the universe is our God. We come as his people with his authority, and he will be right there in the mix. We need to remind, be remember, reminded of our identity. Now, here at Sacred City, we, have, uh, we highlight four identities. Let me just remind you of those. First, we're family. Uh, and I'm just going to quote off the, the website here. Uh, as family, we see it as our call to personally care for the needs of one another, both physically and spiritually. Through missional community and Sunday gathering, we disciple, nourish, and hold each other accountable to our covenant life together. We're family. Uh, second, missionaries. We are sent by God to restore all things to himself. We believe we are missionaries sent into our culture to restore all things to God through Jesus. Third, we're servants. We are servants of God who serve others as a way of life. Four, we're learners. We are disciples of Jesus who takes responsibility of our own development and the development of others. As a young man, Jesus grew in wisdom, stature, and favor with men. He learned from the local religious teachers by living in community and through regular times of listening to God. We are called to the same life of learning, discipleship, and discipling of others. This includes both our personal time with God as well as pursuing together the training provided by spiritual leadership. This is our identity. Second essential, the reminder of our identity. Third, here we go. What is essential to the transformative work? Well, the third essential is the involvement of all of God's people. See, again, back in our passage there, look at the second part of verse 8. We are reminded of the kingly and priestly presence and cooperation in the work. Zerubbabel, read there, Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning. If you remember, the first name is the kingly name. The second name is the uh, priestly name. So the beginning of the building is to set a foundation. So thorough was the destruction of the temple by the Babylons that they actually had to start all over again. So Zerubbabel and Jeshua gathered their human resources. They made a beginning, now keep reading in your passage, together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. 
So what is exciting about uh, this work is that all the parties are involved. It is both priestly families and Davidic families, and it is both of those who bring spiritual oversight to the people of God and also civic oversight uh, to the people of God. But not only these two groups of people, but look there in your passage, but all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. Transformative work is not for a few or for the experts. Transformative work is for all of God's people. As God is calling his transformative work in your hearts, which he is, you cannot do it alone. You need others. You need an MC. You need, you need a fight club where God's people are listening and asking questions and taking your unbelief back to the four G's of God, his greatness, his glory, his grace, his goodness. And as God is calling us as a church to be transformative in our church and then in our communities and our cities, this cannot be done alone. God is calling us to do this work. What is essential to transformative work? His presence, a clear identity, involvement of God's people, fourth, submission to God's word. Submission to God's word. See, look at the end of verse 8. Look at the end of verse 8. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua with his sons and his brothers and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and their brothers. Now, there were two types of uh, supervision, two types of supervision that need to be done. They were supervising the work and they were supervising the workmen. And this was a strict attention to the standards of what was to be in this transformative work and those working on it. What they were using as the standard to supervise the work and the workmen was, no surprise, the word of God. Now when the elders of this church say that we're gospel-centered, we don't just mean that we're, we are bringing people back to how to be justified before God. That is to bring them back to an understanding of the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins as their substitutes. Although we do include that. What we mean by gospel-centered is that the good news is, is that God's word speaks to all of life. That God is calling us to a transformative work. And when he does that, he includes these broad categories of educational systems, political systems, social systems, and religious systems. So when we're talking God, when we say gospel-centered, we're saying, what does the gospel, how does the gospel speak into these systems? All of God's word for all of life. There is no secular space. And so when Danny Hankner, one of our members, posted a video to our Realm feed last Friday about, I think, if I'm understanding the video, I think it's about individual freedom. About individual freedom, the first summarizing question of several who immediately commented was the question, is this appropriate for the church to consider? And I was asking the same question. Should he be posting this on Realm? Should he be posting this in a place that's about the community, the, the, just the, the believers, um, just the church here? Um, so the answer is yes. Individual freedom is a question for the church. What Danny was bringing to the attention of the church was a concern. Now, what was missing in the uh, video was any gospel hope. Uh, in other words, God's word gives us gospel direction when dealing with real issues of concern in our day, and it should be hopeful 
hopefulness. So I think, I think it's a question we need to be asking ourselves. I think it's appropriate within the church because we are saying that God's word does speak to all of life. It is an issue of all of life. Are our liberties being taken away? But it always should be then addressed of, well, what does God's word have to say in order to give us hopefulness? All that was being preyed upon me was fear in that video. I think God doesn't call us to fear. He calls us to love. How do we take this these liberties and the concern that we're losing them, and what does God's word have to say to them? So in, in Ezra's day, when, when, the, when the spiritual and civic leaders took up their transformative work of building the temple, they didn't say, hey, what's the newest temple design? Or I wonder what everybody else is doing. I wonder what the other temples around the world are, are looking like. No, rather they went back to the God's word. What does God's word say? So now let's move outside of realm outside of the church, and now into the social media. So when you publish your opinions, that's what you're doing, you're actually publishing, you're publishing your opinions on social media as an act, I hope, of transformative work, make certain you've done the hard work of studying God's word as the basis of your opinion. I think so often what we do is, is we respond out of emotion. We have not done the hard work of asking, what does God's word have to say in this moment? When you come to that conclusion, then you're, you, you can post it, you can publish what God's word has to say to that. Fourth essential transformative work is submission to God's word. All right, he said there's five, there's five. What is essential to the transformative work? The fifth essential is hopeful praise by faith in God's promise. Hopeful praise by faith in God's promise. Hopeful praise by faith in God's promise or promises. Well, time has passed. Um, we pick up the story after the foundation has been laid down. And what we find here in verses 10 through 13 is we find a kind of a precursor to much of the rest of the story that we're going to discover with regards to uh, God's people there, these exiles. In transformative work, there is going to be opposition, particularly from those outside of the people of God. That being the case, we must bolster our faith in God's, pray, uh, in God's promises through, first, regular celebrations of God's goodness and faithfulness. See, consider what they were celebrating here. Uh, they were celebrating the completion of foundations. Foundations, for the most part, are unseen. And what you see isn't all that impressive. So, th so they needed to have a, a, an imagination of what this meant, a future uh, glory, if you will. Uh, they needed to trust in God's promises that this foundation was going to end up being something wonderful and grand and, and good. And so we, they, they celebrated. They, what did they do? First of all, look there, verse 10. They sang responsively. That is, back and forth between two or more groups, they reminded each other of God's goodness and faithfulness in song. Now we get the content. The content was twofold. It was praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And so praise is generally uh, focused upon the character of God. And thanksgiving is focused upon then the outcome of his gracious work on behalf of his people. Simply put, these are songs of gratitude. Not only do we know what kind of singing uh, they did, we, they heard that day, but we also get actually the words. So here's the words of their songs, at least the most important ones. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So the essence of their praise is this, that the character of God is that his essence, he is good. And that goodness is manifested in his covenant love for his people. The hope for the exiles was not in their faithfulness to God, but in God's faithfulness to them. The response of the people, keep reading in your passage there, and all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. There is a place for shouting praise to God. 
Not like my anemic yes down here. <laughs> I'm trying. And one of those occasions of shouting praise to God is when there is an expectation of his living in the midst of his people. Because living in the, God living in the midst of one's life is the essence of salvation. And so this is what they anticipated. They shouted. The prospect of having God in their midst caused them to shout with joy. However, praise and thanksgiving in small beginnings does require faith. And isn't that what faith is? Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then what the Hebrew reader wants you to write or wants you to do is, is that he wants you then to go through and consider all the small beginnings of people which required faith to believe in great promises. The exiles were to have to exercise their faith for what they saw was so small. Requires regular celebrations. But it also requires, last thing, a rebuking of soul-sucking comparisons. The rebuking of soul-sucking comparisons. See, this is what we, we see here in verses 12 and uh, 13. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's house, houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish between the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. See, there were individuals who were there, and in their mind's eye, they remembered, and it was a long time ago, it was at least 70 years ago, they remembered 70 years ago, so these people are pretty old, uh, they remembered 70 years old, the first temple, and from their estimation, the comparison led them to disappointment and loud grief for the better days and the better ministry that they remember. We will always be tempted to compare the transformative work God is calling us to with other works. As individuals, you will be tempted to compare your life with others and will be tempted to be discouraged and give up. Rebuke yourself for this soul Sucking comparison. As an attendee or church member, you will be tempted to compare your current MC with your previous MC experience and be discouraged and be a discourager and want to give up. Be rebuked for this soul-sucking comparison. As an attender of, or, or, or church member, you will be tempted to compare Sacred City Church with either your previous churches you were involved in or by the thousands of churches on social media where you get a curated best side of them and you will be tempted to be discouraged and be a discourager. Be rebuked for this soul-sucking comparison. See, God has called us and he's called you as a local manifestation of his glory to do a work here. You're here. And he wants to do a work through us. God has called us as a local manifestation of his good news to transformative work. So let's invite God's presence into all that we do. Let's live out the identity we have in him. He is our God. We are his people. He, he dwells in our souls. Let's all get involved in this transformative work. Let's commit to submit to God's word and let's see life through the lenses of his promises. When Jesus was agonizing in the garden of Gethsemane, he was about to take upon himself the sins of the world and he used that name of endearment that he won for us on the cross when he said this. He said, Abba, Father, when God calls us into transformative work, it's going to be really hard work. And it's going to be a lot of agony. It's going to be agony in your own soul. It's going to be an agony within your family. It's going to be an agony within our community, with our church. It's going to be an agony, agony within our city. He says we have to wrestle with sin within us and the conflict that comes with that and the, and the, the opposition that comes outside of the temptations that we're all in. It's, it's an agony. So when Jesus was there about to take him on himself the sins of the world, he cries out, Abba, Father. Remember that? Romans 8. 
Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He depended upon the Father's tenderness at the moment, even when the will of the Father led him to the agony of the cross. And that's what he's asking us to do. Walk in his will, transformative work. It might be a little agonizing. And all he says is just cry out and say, Ah, the Father, Papa, Papa, help. Jesus depended upon the Father's tenderness at that moment. Even when the will of the Father led him to the agony of Christ, he perfectly obeyed the will of the Father on our behalf. He is our righteousness. So as we take this cup and this bread, we are reminded again of the goodness of God who lived the life we ought to have lived and died the death that we ought to have died. God's covenant promises are ours through his steadfast love. So again, enjoy this reminder, Lord's Supper. Father, thank you. Transformative work, Father, we have imaginations. We think of all the grand and wonderful things that you want to do in our lives, our families, and our communities, and our cities. And we have these great grand pictures, Father. And then we're reminded again, it's going to be agonizing. But in that, you want to meet us. In there, in that place, you want us to grow in trust of your tender, loving care for our souls. Father, I pray, we pray together for one another. There are, there are, there's a work that you're doing, there's transformation that you're doing in the lives of the people here, Father, and some people here are really agonizing right now. They're agonizing, they're struggling, they're struggling with their sin, they're struggling with just challenges, just life. Abba, Father, Papa, work, please. We invite you into that. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name for his glory, our good. Amen.